Well, we are back in our topical series on living in grace, counseling the word. And typically we walk through books of the Bible, but we're taking a handful of weeks to cover this series that I pray helps us all counsel the word of God to ourselves and then also to one another. And a few weeks ago I preached on what it means to be new creations in Jesus Christ. And today I want to address some truths that address us when we feel like we are, frankly, in over our heads in our struggle with sin. For some Christians, or for some folks, uh, they might feel so trapped in their sin, and there can be this accompanying dread, so this dreadful, overwhelming feeling of despair that overwhelms the soul. Maybe you have been in the situation yourself. And you feel as if you are drowning in the sea of your own twisted desires, your lack of self-control, your guilt, the shame, your apparent powerlessness, and your failure. I mean, just imagine the turmoil of the soul when what you so desperately want to escape is yourself. Those who might be tempted to feel this way, our main verse that we look at this morning brings hope, great hope. It can be found on the front of your bulletins there, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. And this is what it reads. It says there, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. The main point for today is no matter how unusable you may feel like you are because of your sin... In Christ, you are never without hope. No matter how unusable you may feel you are, or how unwanted, or even unlovable, you in Christ, you are never without hope. For our outline today, we're just going to take our main verse, and then just break it up into two points. Number one, the desires that overtake us. Number two, are common to man. And even though we'll look mainly at that verse, it's important to look at the context that the verse comes from. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And a quick reading of the entire book of Corinthians here will show you that the church wrestled with all sorts of sins, whether it be pride, divisions, sexual immorality. And among some, there was even a certain presumption on God's grace. So you had the strong Christians, we can call them, not thinking and caring about the weaker Christians. And then you also had the the, the weaker Christians who seemed to struggle with a bit of despair, thinking they weren't going to get God's grace. So there was a presumption of God's grace, and then there was others who thought they weren't going to get any grace. And uh, to help the so-called strong Christians and the weak Christians, Paul encourages them to desire the godly things and to trust in God's covenant faithfulness. And the way he does does this is to show Israel's ongoing faithfulness that they experienced in the Exodus, in their desert wanderings, as they persisted time and time again to love themselves and not God. So look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 to 13. I'll read that now. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our, for, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and, to, and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone think, who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the, the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So again, as he wants the Corinthian church to learn from Israel's failures, Paul gives them four separate examples of Israel's ongoing disobedience there from verses 7 to 10. You have four examples of them giving in to what they wanted as opposed to giving in and pursuing what God wanted for them. Paul says there in verse 13, look, no matter what you face, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And here he holds out these folks as examples to us, for them and us, as we seek to pursue Christ's covenant faithfulness and put all of our trust in him. And verse 13, at least the first half of it, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It functions in two different ways, right? It functions in one way to the strong Christians who presume on God's grace, who say, you know, hey, it's okay for me to sin. Or, you know, don't you know how hard it is for me to resist sin given my industry? Right? They're presuming on God's grace. To them, this verse here functions as a way to bring them back into the realm of the normal Christian experience. He says, look, no matter what you guys go through, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. And so you can't go on and claim, it's hard for me to sin, I needed to sin. You know, don't you understand my situation? He says, no, you can't do that. So it functions as a warning to those folks, the stronger Christians, so to speak. But second, it also functions as a call to freedom. To the weaker Christians, who certainly felt great responsibility for their actions and all the weight that fell on them, if they disobeyed God, right? These are the folks who felt ungodly condemnation and an ungodly guilt. And these were the so-called weaker Christians. To them, this verse is freedom. He says, you are not imprisoned by sin and shame. Instead, you are not alone. All of us experience all those same types of sins. And so for those who feel like they are outside of the realm of the normal Christian experience and so are despairing, here this verse brings them back into the realm of the grace of God and sees that there is grace for their situation. Today we're going to take this main verse and apply it to those who feel weighed down by ungodly guilt and shame. To those of us who might feel like we've been overtaken by our desires and temptations. And frankly feel sidelined in the race of faith because of our discouragement. Next week, without doubt, you know, we're going to, look through a, we're going to go through a more thorough exegesis and explanation of this passage. But today we look at this, this first part of verse 13 and apply it to the discouraged. And friends, if you do not know what this feels like to be so discouraged and overwhelmed with your own sin, you know, I pray that in this sermon you're able to take what we learned 
and then know how to apply it to your brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you who may one day feel like this. So let's look first at the desires and temptations that overtake us. It is really clear. He says there at 13 that no temptation has overtaken you. And technically this word refers to the situations that we feel, the situations that we find ourselves similar to James 1. But he's not only talking about the situations that we experience. He's also talking about when we give into the desires and give into sin in those temptations. So he's talking about the situation and our falling into sin. And we know that here because in verse 6 he says, look, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Or desire evil on an ongoing way that shows that they are not Christians. So it is the temptation, but it's also the desires that come from the heart, as James says. James chapter 4, James chapter 1. But nevertheless, uh, here what he's talking about is the fact that we will, as Christians, nevertheless, give in to sin. Even though we are new creations in Christ. Even though we have been saved. Even though we have new hearts through the new covenant that Jesus puts his very spirit inside of us. You know, we are promised one day full holiness, full perfection when we are before Christ in heaven. But while we live in this time, sort of being drawn out of the kingdom of darkness and then now are walking on our ways in our journey of faith, without doubt it is a fight. And for some being overtaken by sin and having given into their desires, you know, once again, this can be so wearying so discouraging if you have ever been in that position you know that struggling with sin can just make the joy of the lord scarcely felt because once again once again a feeling of helplessness or ungodly condemnation ungodly guilt that says no god can't forgive me for this because of what i've done and then also there's an accompanying ungodly shame that says god would never love me or be anymore because of who i am you know, frankly, I felt this way in regards to sexual immorality and sin in my own life that I had wrestled with for a very long time. And it was sin that just simply plagued me for years and years and years. Perhaps some sins trip you up and sucks the joy from your own Christian life. The sin of lying that you can't stop or can't seem to stop. Maybe the, the jealousy that you feel towards those who are sitting next to you. The bitterness that rages in your heart or maybe even the anxiety that you feel, the anxiety that imprisons your soul or maybe the fear of man that you can't help but bow down to. As you look at what you've given into again, the sins that you've committed, how you've fallen, you know, you feel that all hope has, has abandoned you. In those moments, there is an instinct to focus on the thing that you've done. I'm sure you guys probably identify with this. You know, we focus on the ways in which we've fallen yet again. And it's those things in realizing what we've done that we feel so discouraged. And naturally so, there's this instinct to focus on the thing that we have done. I mean, it's a thing that we see. It's a thing that everyone sees. It's a thing that has most immediate consequences. We lie again. We cheat on our spouse again. We look at pornography again. Again, we flirt with a married man in the office because he just makes me feel so loved. But instinctively, it may feel like the right thing to do, right? To focus on the what. To focus on how you have fallen. 
But friends, this can actually hurt us spiritually big time. To be too focused on the what. Did you know, Christian, that Satan would love for you to fix your eyes on what you have done as a way to cut you off from what Christ has done? So for one, for one thing, it, it, it plays into our self-righteousness. Focusing on, once again, on how we have sinned again. It plays into our desires for self-righteousness. I mean, how many of us have sinned and respond, I can't believe that I did that. You hear self-righteousness in that? You hear self-righteousness in that as as, um, you have yet to comprehend the depths of depravity that exists in your own heart? It's as if we say, I am certainly above that. I can't believe I have done that. But if we feel sidelined in the race because we did something that we thought was beneath us, we have to ask ourselves what race we're even running. It sounds like a race of self-righteousness. That we might never be associated with what we judge to be so beneath us. Well, not only does it play into our self-righteousness, you know that it also plays into our legalism. Satan wants you to focus on what you have done and how specifically you have fallen once again because it plays into our legalism. I mean, if what we want is to preserve our own self-righteousness, well, then what are we going to turn to to make us right? What are we going to turn to to make us righteous? Of course, we're going to turn to our own standards, our own methods, and our own laws. And then not only that, though, not only does focusing on the, on the act of sin play into self-righteousness, not only does it play into your own legalism, it frankly plays into your own desires to be God. I mean, who becomes the judge in that situation? You are. You determine that you're good so long as you are living up to your own expectations. You are good as long as you pass all of your own performance evaluations. I mean, no wonder we as Christians, when we've fallen again into sin, feel so sidelined in the race of faith. Our eyes are so used to staring at ourselves, judging ourselves, applauding ourselves, or condemning ourselves. It's as if the Christian life is one big gymnastics floor routine where you are the performer, you are your own audience, and you are your own judge. In this situation, sin and even confession of sin in this situation is more like an ode or a song or a praise to self-salvation. So you guys know Psalm 51, that great chapter of confession where David, after he's rebuked by Nathan for committing adultery and then also basically committing murder, he goes and confesses his sin. I mean, go ahead and turn over there right now. Psalm 51. And of course, it's not written as an ode to self-salvation. It's, a, it's written acknowledging that God is the one who is to save. You look there at verse 1 where David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." I mean, imagine if this was, in fact, an ode to self-salvation. In your own self-righteousness, when your own self-pity, you turn and look inward and stare at all the ways in which you need to save yourselves. For, look there, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against me, and me only have I sinned and done what is evil in 
my sight. Ode to self-salvation. And then you look there in verse 14, you take it from there. Deliver me, we pray this to our very own selves, deliver me from my own blood guiltiness. And of course, as he mentions about how sinners can then turn to you in verse 13, then in my own self-righteousness, I will teach transgressors my ways because I'm so good at cleaning up myself and sinners will return to me and to my own ways and my own self-righteousness. You see how obsessing about what you have done, Christian, can be murderous to your own Christian life? It's because it takes your eyes off of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? It eclipses the glories of Jesus Christ in salvation and in sanctification. It obscures God's love for you. It blurs your vision of Christ's cross work for you. For friends in salvation, God in the gospel of Jesus Christ lifts our eyes from the prison of self-righteousness, of self-justification, of self-salvation in order to gaze upon what Christ has done. He does that when we are saved and then he does that too in every step of sanctification as we grow in holiness, clinging on to Jesus Christ. So just remember about the ways in which you were saved. When you were stuck in the prison of your own self-righteousness, as you were inward turning, looking at your own self, thinking that you are the performer, the audience, and your very own judge, and you can't do anything because you can't save yourself. But God in his grace comes to you and gives you a way out. He lifts your eyes that are so focused on yourself. And from your own prison of self-righteousness, we hear the commotion of the crowd. We hear the chants of crucify him, crucify him. As Christ the suffering servant was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. From ourselves, we see the bleeding son of God Lifted high on the cursed cross for the sins of many. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. From ourselves of self-righteousness and self-justification. We hear the echo of Christ's cry. It is finished. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And as he breathed his last, the darkness that was cast over the land penetrated all the way into our own dark heart. And after three days of sadness and confusion and helplessness, we hear from ourselves of self-righteousness, we hear the rustling. We see the commotion of the women who went to the tomb, visited the tomb, only then to be greeted by the angel who said, He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And as we witness these things from the cells of our own self-righteousness, God calls us to embrace them, believe on him for salvation, and say along with Paul that God loved me and gave himself for me. You see, friend, right now, as you're struggling in your own self-righteousness to do what is right to save yourself, you see how none of the gospel is worked by us? In the gospel, we literally sit in the cells and look outward and see all the great things that Christ has done for us. It's a salvation not worked for us, not accomplished by us, but through Jesus Christ. 
and his great work on the cross. As his word says, salvation belongs to the Lord belongs to the Lord. In salvation, God lifts our hearts to see him save, and so he does for every single step of our Christian journey until he brings us home. The gospel is not something you gaze at and embrace once. It is something that you gaze at and embrace every single step of the Christian journey, all the way until he brings you to final salvation. This is ongoing grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For sinners, such as ourselves. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a believer, have you ever felt overtaken by sin? Like there's just nothing you can do to stop the thing that you're trying to stop doing. I've heard of one person who is friends of friends here who feels like there's nothing he can do to give up his desires for sexual immorality. He desires to give it up. He knows so clearly, he's not a Christian, he knows so clearly that it damages his life. He knows so clearly that it damages uh, the girlfriends that he's with. He knows so clearly that it's going to damage the child that he's going to have. And yet he can't give it up. You know, friends, there's a reason why you do that. That's because we all struggle with sin. We all possess a sin nature. And ever since Adam and Eve first sinned against God and rebelled against him and strove to live underneath their own autonomy, we all have sinned. And have rebelled against God. And we inherit this desires the Bible speaks about. How we are inclined, our hearts are inclined to long for the fleshly things. So friends, let me encourage you to embrace your despair. I know that sounds really strange, especially in this self-esteem culture. But let me encourage you to embrace your despair. It's the siren that you live with that points to the fact that it, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. That you're living in a way that you are not designed to live. And in fact, your conscience tells you that now. As you are overtaken by your sin, you're struggling with guilt. You struggle with shame. But friends, the great news is that God in his grace and his mercy and his love for sinners extends his hand of compassion to you in Jesus Christ. Who lives the perfect life that you right now are probably striving to live. He even bears the punishment that we ourselves deserved as he died on the cross for the sins of many. And then as he is resurrected from the grave, he shows that your payment, if you would repent of your sins and turn and embrace Jesus Christ, has been paid for. And your relationship, should you believe on Jesus Christ, is restored to your very own creator, who knows exactly how you ought to live and can help you live the way that he designed you to live. So friends here, if you are overtaken by your sin, let me encourage you to turn from your sins and believe on your creator and savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's point number one. Now that we know we are to turn to Christ, even when we've been overtaken by sin, what do we make of what we have done? It's, it's, we need to look at the what. I mean, that's certainly important. And we're going to be looking at the what in future weeks here. But for now, <clears throat> one thing we can turn to is our second point. The what here. It says so clearly that it is common to man. What do we make of our sins that we so are disgusted with sometimes? It says they're little, they are common to man. I mean, that's God's verdict. They are part and parcel of what it means to be a sinful human being. I mean, keep in mind, you know, I say this having experienced this 
heaping condemnation on myself and this disgust over my own sin. And here it just says that, hey, look what you're struggling with is common to man. It's a straightforward answer to those who obsess about what they've done. Those who can't believe that we have sinned in this particular way. Those who desire dark things. Things that they themselves are are so worried and scared and fearful to face. Those of you who are ready to go to the grave before you let your sin be known to anybody. Here he says, your sin and your desires that give birth to that sin are common to man. I find this to be really encouraging, actually. Common to man. I mean, no doubt we sin in unique ways, but the desires that underlie our sins are the same desires that work in the hearts of everybody else here. So if you've come in feeling so disgusted and guilty and shamed over what you've done, when you enter into the church and you gather with Christians, here God says, look, you're like the same just as everybody else. Same desires that work manifest themselves in different ways. Same stuff. For example, let's say we were to look at three separate Christians. You know, we're looking at them and we might see, sadly so, three different sins, but all with the same desire. Take the sin of adultery, take the sin of habitual lying, and then the sin of neglecting your family for the sake of work. Right On the surface, those are all really different sins, it seems, but it is possible that they all share the same common desire of, let's just say, living for the praise of man and not God. The Christian single gal who commits adultery, right? She sleeps with her married co-worker because he keeps coming on to her. He pursues her and she just feels so good because she feels cherished and loved and she loves him. You take the, the brother who lies habitually. You know, I can't let them know the real me because if I told them the truth, you know, they're not going to like me anymore. I'm not going to have any friends. Take the brother who neglects his family for work. You know, he might say... Man, I feel so good with the respect that I get from my coworkers. They see me working so hard, so I'm just going to go ahead and work some more. I get respect here. These are different manifestations, but all the same desire. Desire to please man or find our significance in what others think of us. Our sins, our desires are common to man. Friend, Christian, one thing that will kill your Christian life and suck the joy of the Lord out of your Christian life is thinking that your sin is uncommon to man. That your desires, that rage in your heart that you so want to escape, thinking those things are uncommon to men. And you know that that leads to great isolation. Where it feels almost like the lights of the Christian life are going dark in one area at a time before you dwell in darkness in its entirety. You feel the shame after having committed some particular sin. Or maybe you feel the shame just experiencing the very desires of your hearts itself. You know that it leads to an inability to minister to other people because you're so occupied with what's going on in yourself. You can barely get your eyes to lift up and see the needs of others. But in the most loving way possible, friends, God calls you to get over yourself. And walk through the door of freedom in Christ. Living for the praise of man that leads to adultery? Common to man. Seeking satisfaction in the stuff of the world other than God. Satisfaction in materialism. Drug addiction. Compulsive eating. Addiction to video games. God says it's common to man. Raging bitterness and anger where your heart can't find a rest in God or can't trust in God. But instead it leads to grudges. 
fighting. And friends, if you know your own heart, some of you even desires for murder. God says, common to man. Giving in to a heart of worry that gives you phobias or makes you what is described to be obsessive compulsive. Common to man. Pure carnality that makes you want to live like the Israelites, who make, makes you want to live like, or makes you want to use people and animals or whatever for your own personal playthings, God says that is too, is common to man. Friends, when Jesus came to die on the cross for man, it was his very intention to die on the cross for the most heinous of sins, the most heinous of desires that the human heart could ever produce. As Mark 2.17 says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I came to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to salvation. So then we got to ask the question, okay, if Jesus is the one who takes on flesh to die on the cross for these types of sins and these types of desires and these types of sinners, well, why exactly are we so afraid of bringing our sins out to the open so that they can be dealt with in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in my opinion, sexual sin and the desires that lead to it can cause many people to feel this ungodly guilt, ungodly condemnation where they ponder if God would ever forgive and love someone as perverse as we are. And in ungodly shame we tend to think that we are unworthy to bear the name christian or perhaps that god would strip us of the name christian we think we are different from everyone else thinking we are the outcasts and in our own fear we cut ourselves off from christ and his church friends this is so unfortunate it's so unfortunate because scripture is clear that god loves all who turn from their sins and believes on him for salvation. The sexually immoral included. And if you lump yourself into this category, friends, your sins and struggles and desires, in fact, are common to man. This is one reason why Paul speaks so frequently about this issue in Scripture. Have you ever asked why he repeatedly, again and again and again, addresses sexual immorality? In Romans, it's addressed. 1 Corinthians, it's addressed. 2 Corinthians, it's addressed. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, Jude, and Revelation, sexual immorality. He's talking to Christians who struggle with the very same things that you, friends, struggle with. This is just the New Testament letters. We're not even talking about the Gospels. We're not even talking about the Old Testament. Why, why is it so commonly addressed? It's because the Christians struggle with it. Just think of 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul actually has to take the time to remind the church... And say, a man is sleeping with his stepmother, and you guys are wrongfully tolerating it. I mean, Corinth was the Vegas of the first century Roman Empire. But what is so beautiful, friends, is in that climate, in that culture, that included all of this sexual deviancy, God is determined, nevertheless, to build a church that displays the beauty of His majesty out of sinners like them. As God saves them out of the background, you know, out of that background, of course they're going to be struggling with these very th things that God saves them from as they strive to live a life worthy of God's name. 
I mean, the Corinthian church was a church full of folks who were trying to let go of sexual immorality and cling to the purity of Christ. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And we see here that Paul is reminding them of what they were. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's what they formerly were. They were unrighteous. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a clear warning, right? He's reminding them of God's holiness. But then look what he writes. And such were some of you. It's a church full of sinners who are saved by grace. And their struggles, look, they are common to man. Did that stop God from saving them? Of course not. Look what he says next. He says, but you were washed, friends. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Just as it was for them. So it is for all of us. So it is for you, Christian. Your desires for and your acts of sexual immorality do not surprise God one bit. Not one bit. It might surprise you, but it surprises God not one bit. I mean, you realize that he's been dealing with the depraved, sinful human heart since not long after creation. And even before that, he was dealing with it in relation to uh, the creation of the angels in relation to the devil, that is Satan. And friends, you realize that from the beginning of creation, from Genesis chapter 3, he's been seeking out sinners in order to give them grace for their very problems and the issues that they struggle with to those who turn to him. So friends, will your sin keep God from forgiving you, cleansing you, declaring you righteous? The answer is no. Because your salvation has never depended on you to begin with. The righteousness you need before God does not depend on how good you are or how accurate your law is or how righteous your own law is or whether or not you can even keep it. But it is wholly dependent on a righteousness outside of yourself. A righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners, Paul says. He is the one who keeps God's law. He is the one who alone can give you the righteousness you need to stand before God. And he alone is the judge that will come back. The one who declares you righteous through his own blood. Friends, if we are, friends, we are a community of sinners saved by grace. And for the repentant, God calls us into freedom and forgiveness in his own sovereign grace. I mean, just take for a moment, you know, I recognize that some of you might be despairing, but just take a moment and imagine what a beautiful display of the glory of God we would be as ministers of God's grace, as we minister God's grace out of the grace that we have received. If we are a grace-filled church, I think this would show itself in a few different ways, and you know, we're going to talk about this more in, in future weeks, but I'll give you, give you a few here right now. First, it should lead us to share our testimonies about how God saved us. We would be a testifying community to one another about how God saved us. I love hearing the testimonies that we get to hear from those who have been baptized. 
We're actually going to have some baptism on May 22nd. But if you think back to the baptism that we have heard even most recently, there we got testimonies. I'm so thankful that the folks who stand up are open with wisdom about out of what what exactly God saves them from. So we hear stories about living in sexual immorality, how God saves people like that. We live. We hear stories about how God saves people out of addiction to drugs, and we thank God that God saves people like that. So, friends, if you count yourself a mature Christian here, if you count yourself a strong Christian here, I pray that when you share your testimonies, Lord, you own what the Lord has done to you. You own it. You own the sin that you repented of in the beginning. And you remember from where you have been saved. Lives of sexual immorality. Lives of living for your own pleasure. Lives of idolizing money. Relationships. Hatred against others. And most especially God. I pray that you would own those things. And be confessing these things as you share your testimonies to other people. Now of course we need to be judicious in the details. But friends if you are confident in God's grace. I think in general, it will lead you to own God's grace for even your worst of sins. And so when we turn up to a lunch, t- lunch table when we're sharing our testimonies, we say, man, I was an idolater, and this is what I idolized. This is what I pursued, and God still saved me from these things. These are the ways in which I was living against God in rebellion against Him, and yet He pacified my heart. I mean, what a powerful testimony it would be to the discouraged and the despairing. Powerful. Keep in mind, they're the ones who feel sidelined in the race of faith. But this is what they get to hear and this is what they get to see. The company of the redeemed heading to the kingdom of Christ, proclaiming Christ's grace to save sinners such as ourselves. And every individual in the company testifies to the powerful, steadfast love of God to save the worst of sinners. So as we all walk on our Christian journey, we've got to recognize that there are the despairing, and the despairing meets a girl. I used to seek pleasure in sexual pleasure, but now I find no greater pleasure in Jesus Christ. They, they meet the next person. They see the guy. I used to worship myself and, and just used everyone around me to satisfy myself, but Christ showed me that he alone is worthy of worship. And I see now that everyone around me is made in the image of God, designed as well to live for his glory. They meet the next person. I used to find my identity in in who I wanted to be and what I could do, but now I see that I am made in the image of God and I love serving him. And then another, I used to be a hater of men, racist, murderous thoughts against others. But now that God has forgiven me, I know the way of love, the way of the cross. What a glorious sight that would be. Sojourners going from this life to the next, all trusting in the grace of God, calling others to experience it once again. Where the weak are encouraged, the faint are lifted up, and those with weak knees are supported through a hundred others gathering around the discouraged. And all this, we help one another see the things that we have done, the sins that we have committed. In light of what our Savior has done by His grace. We do this in a way in which we go back to 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 10 and say, Such was I, friend. Such was I. But I was washed. I was sanctified. And I was justified through faith 
as I believed in Jesus Christ. And I still struggle with these very things, but I was washed. Share your testimonies, friend. Second, the truth that no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man should lead us to confess our sins. It should lead us to confess our sins. So for you who feel shamed and guilty, you feel like there is no other alternative but to quietly fight the waves on your own just to keep your head above water, friends, this passage calls you to give up whatever you so desperately cling to. Because, you know, you realize that whatever you refuse to confess is connected to the thing that you're willing to die to protect. So what is it that you're idolizing? Are you fighting with everything you got to protect your reputation that you so desire? Friends, God calls you to let it go. If you fear what others think of you, let the fear of man go. Is it your own righteousness? And admitting sin, therefore, means acknowledging that you have failed your own standards. Friends, let the idolatry of self go. What is it that you stand to lose if you confess your sin and ask for help? Friends, whatever you cling to, count it as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. Turn over to Philippians 4. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. And friends, I pray that Paul would be your mentor. As he freely confesses his sins, as he counts all of his supposed self-righteousness as loss, this is what he says there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And what he's talking about here is everything he could possibly gain before the world, all the self-righteousness. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law because he's let it go. Everything that the world boasts in, Paul relinquishes. He counts it as, he counts it as trash. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, if you are despairing, I pray that you would see that what awaits you when you let go of your idolatries and your own self-righteousness is endless joy in knowing your Savior. I am excited for you to let go of your idolatries and enter into the joy of the Lord. Knowing the steadfast love of Christ who is able to forgive your worst of sins, knowing the compassion of Christ, who promises to never leave us, nor forsake us, regardless of what you have done, knowing the strength of God's compassionate embrace, as He promises you, friend, eternal security, and no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand, and His own hand. Even knowing His loving yet firm rebuke, and the purifying power of the Holy Spirit as He calls you to fight for purity. Friends, the only way to receive the righteousness of Christ is by letting go of your own. Confess your sins, friend. The third thing, the third truth, or sorry, the third thing that this verse leads us to the verse says, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. This should lead us to 
diligently pursue Christ together. Diligently pursue Christ together. We're going to look at more about how sinners can partner together to fight to pursue Jesus Christ. But for now, let me just give you these points here. Um, you know, confession for confession's sake is meaningless. It is meaningless. I was once a part of this accounting, account, accountability group, and as far as I can remember, you know, for years we would gather together on Wednesday nights, and there was tons of confession, lots of confession. Every Wednesday we'd get together and confess our sin, mostly sexual sin, but I don't ever remember giving each other the medicine of God's grace to help each other. I don't ever remember some basic action steps that we could take to fight sin. And so this accountability group seemed to use confession as a means of commiseration. Make ourselves feel better, at least it was on my part. Make ourselves feel better because, hey, you know, our sin is common. All of us struggle with these things. We realize that simple commonness of our sin and desires is not what should encourage us here in this passage. It is not the simple commonness of our sin and desires that should encourage us here. Um, if it is, you know, then we'd be able to link arms and be encouraged by those who hate Jesus Christ. Because they commit the same types of sins and they have the same types of desires. But what we, what should encourage us here, what should encourage us to confess our sins and battle against our sins and pursue Jesus Christ through God's grace in the power of the Spirit is the fact that it is the universal Christian experience to struggle against the desires of the heart. It is the universal Christian experience to struggle against the desires of the heart and lay hold of Christ. This is why when you are to confess your sin, you confess your sin to one another and to God. Because then we're able to come alongside one another and encourage one another in the Lord. As we all walk in this life, being drawn out of the kingdom of darkness and are walking to the end, we, take, we offer out our own hands of compassion and extend our own hands of help to bring along and link arms with the despairing and those who feel sidelined in their own race of faith. We join together. We labor to help the weak, encourage the faint-hearted, be patient with those who are struggling together. And together we are able to minister God's grace out of the grace that we have received. To conclude, the verse says, once again, let it be hope to you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Friends, if you feel overwhelmed in your sin, remember that God's grace is sufficient even for the worst of sins and the worst of sinners. Will you see what you have done in the light of what Christ has done on the cross? Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You for Your grace in Jesus Christ. We thank You for the love that You have lavished on us, as it says in Your Word, that You call us to be Your children. We thank You for Your compassion. That you identified with sinners by taking on the likeness of flesh, by suffering at the hands of sinners, and by even bearing all of the weight and the wrath that we deserved, so that sinners would be free. Father, we pray that we, you, by your Spirit, would help us not struggle with an ungodly condemnation, but with a godly 
condemnation and guilt, one that leads to repentance and reconciliation and a claiming of grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spilled blood because in it we recognize that we have full and final forgiveness. Father, we pray again for the despairing. We pray, Lord, that you would help lift their eyes to behold what you have done in the gospel and how there is ongoing grace to meet them in their time of need. Father, we pray for us as strong, perhaps those who might consider us ourselves as stronger Christians who might not feel this type of condemnation. Lord, we pray that you would help us be compassionate just like you and come alongside our brothers and sisters in understanding and in love, helping them walk the walk of faith. And Lord, in it all, we pray that your grace will be made sufficient here in this place as we continue to throw ourselves at the foot of the cross, casting all of our cares and concerns before you, knowing that in due time, you will lift us up because you care for us. In your name we pray, amen.